0: Hello, everyone. After talking to a few people who found the podcast on Baptism Helpful, I decided to do an additional one on the CSI teaching of the Lord's Supper, what the Lord's Supper is, why it's important. Uh, So as we get started, in CSI, we usually use the terms Holy Communion or Lord's Supper. But sometimes people will use other names, right? Like the Eucharist, which means the Thanksgiving, Or you may hear people in Malayali circles calling it kravana, which means the sacrifice. Or you may hear Catholics calling it the mass, which means the mission. So the Thanksgiving meal, the sacrificial meal, the missional meal, these are all different names by which we can call Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. And each of these names have slightly different meanings. And in the past, Even the name of the meal that Jesus gave us and commanded us to continue has caused division among us, unfortunately. I like using the term communion or the Lord's Supper because those are the terms Paul uses in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians chapters 10 and 11 to refer to the meal Jesus gave us. And that's how I will be referring to the sacrament in this podcast too. But all of the different names are defensible. there are different There are good reasons that they are called that, and in my opinion, we shouldn't make this a problem. We shouldn't have problems with different names for this sacramental meal. To be honest with you guys, I've been avoiding uh covering this subject for a while because I have so many notes, and I know this is probably going to get pretty long in order to explain the Lord's Supper comprehensively and properly. And also because to really understand the CSI teaching on the Lord's Supper, on the one hand it's simple, but on the other hand it it gets a little difficult. So here's how it's simple. Our theology of the Lord's Supper is entirely given to us in our liturgy. Every Sunday when you celebrate Holy Communion, you recite The CSI Theology of the Lord's Supper, which is a very Anglican and Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. And we will look at the liturgy as we go through this podcast, but the thing you should keep in mind as you are listening throughout is that when you examine our liturgy, you see that our understanding of the Lord's Supper is that it it is the meal in which, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we eat the bread and wine by faith— we are brought into the presence of Jesus Christ to feed on him, commune with him, and be joined together in him. And then we are commissioned as living sacrifices for God's glory to go out into the world in peace and mission. That's what's happening. It's a Trinitarian meal in which the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is totally active in shaping us and forming us. The Spirit brings us into the presence of Christ. The Father offers us Christ to feed on by faith as we eat the gifts of bread and wine. And by receiving this gift, by receiving grace from the Father that we did not earn or deserve, we are further conformed to the image of Christ the Son. And so by continually eating this meal together, we proclaim to each other and to the world, the Lord's death, resurrection, and ascension until he comes again. So let me say that again, maybe a little shorter so that you get it. The CSI understanding of the Lord's Supper is that it is the meal in which by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we eat the bread and wine by faith, we are brought into the presence of Jesus Christ to feed on him, commune with him, and be joined together in him. And then we are commissioned as living sacrifices for God's glory to go out into the world in peace and mission. And by continually eating this meal together, we proclaim to the world the Lord's death until he comes again. And honestly, all of that can be defended by looking at our liturgy. If you just look at our liturgy for holy communion you see all of those elements that i just said but even more importantly i believe all of what i just said can be defended by looking at the bible's teaching on the lord's supper itself especially from first corinthians and paul's teaching on it so that's the easy part of explaining the csi view the hard part of explaining the csi view is that you won't really understand what that means or what the practical effect of it is, uh, why it matters, unless you have a better understanding of the context of the sacraments and some knowledge of the debates about what is happening in the Lord's Supper that have occurred in church history. And unless you have that greater context, it's possible that people can misunderstand our teaching on the Lord's Supper for various reasons historical reasons, and especially depending on their own backgrounds that they're coming out of. So for example, one big topic of debate in the history of the church is how is Jesus present to us in the Lord's Supper? Almost everyone agrees that he's present, but there's questions on how he is present. So one view is that Jesus is simply intellectually present. We remember him in our minds, as we eat the bread and wine this view is associated with the swiss reformer Holdrich swingley and it's called the memorialist position and it's very much uh, based in the words jesus said do this in remembrance of me so it's primarily jesus is present to us by remembering intellectually another view is that the bread and wine is physically transformed into the body and blood of jesus So that even though it looks like bread and tastes like bread, that is not what the bread really is anymore. It's not really bread. It's now the body of Christ. It's not really wine anymore. It's the blood of Christ. This is the Roman Catholic view, and it's best articulated by the medieval scholar Thomas Aquinas. And the Orthodox churches of the East, of Greece and Egypt and India... They have a similar view. They don't talk about it the same way, but they hold that there really is some kind of definitive change in the elements of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ somehow as a holy mystery. Um, Both of those views are not, uh, whether it's the memorialist position of Huldrych Zwingli or the transubstantiation view of the Roman Catholics, neither of those views are um, our tradition as the CSI. Our tradition as the CSI, as I've talked about before, it really owes more to the Protestant reformers. Martin Luther, the German, uh, John Calvin, the French reformer. Those, those two are kind of leading lights in the magisterial Protestant Reformation tradition. And we take a lot of our theology from their teachings, um, but they differed among themselves as well. So Martin Luther, the German reformer, believe that the bread and wine are not transformed, but with the bread and wine, we really do physically eat the body and blood of Jesus. So it remains bread and wine, and yet with it, we also receive Jesus. This view is called sacramental union. The bread and wine are still bread and wine, but Jesus is united to the bread and wine in this inseparable way. And That was Luther's view. John Calvin, the French reformer who was in Geneva uh, and was very influential on the Church of England and the Presbyterians and therefore uh, extremely influential on in our church as well, said that by the power of the Holy Spirit, believers are brought, they're raised up into heaven in the worship se- service where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father so that as we physically eat the bread and wine, the bread and wine are not transformed physically, and yet spiritually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we really are feeding on Jesus. This view is kind of confusing. There's a lot of nuance to this view, but it's called the doctrine of spiritual presence. Um, John Wesley and the Methodists, another group very influential on the Church of South India, one of the traditions that united into our church, they taught that in the Lord's Supper, we truly receive the real body and blood of Jesus Christ, but the manner in which we receive it is a holy mystery that can't be explained. And it's almost useless to try and explain it to Wesley and the Methodists. Uh, this is just a, a brief overview of all the different views. And actually, you can go into a lot more detail. I've been giving you a very superficial, surface level view. Uh, but hopefully, you can see. In the ways that I've been talking about the differences and how sometimes the, the differences can be a little confusing, it makes it difficult to talk about what's going on in the Lord's Supper, because people have these background contexts. They're coming out of these different traditions, and so they can hear what we're saying in a misleading way because of so much diversity and in interpretation of what's happening in the Lord's Supper, The second reason why it's difficult to talk about the CSI view on the Lord's Supper is because outside the unifying language of our liturgy, individual CSI people in good conscience have room. We have freedom to disagree with one another on how exactly all of this works. So we confess what is in the liturgy. We pray the liturgy. We believe that it's all true. And actually, as I'll show you, our liturgy is often echoing or paraphrasing or directly quoting scripture so it's hard to disagree with our liturgy but beyond the liturgy you cannot try and impose on someone else in our church your specific view of how this all works so there's some freedom there's some room for disagreement on matters beyond what is explicitly stated in the liturgy for us and obviously again the reason for this is because our church is a union of different traditions that owe to different theologies and interpretations. It's a union of Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists, or sometimes called Puritans, but Congregationalists are are a little different. Uh, And each of those traditions have very detailed understandings of what is going on. And so for the sake of unity, we have basically a broad, reformed Anglican perspective on the Lord's Supper. We confess By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is truly presented to us in the Lord's Supper so that we feed on him. But beyond that, we don't have any particular view on how the manner in which he is presented to us and the manner in which we feed on him. There is some openness on interpretation for the precise mechanism by which it happens. And these are all questions actually on which churches have split. Um... If you look at the history of the Protestant Reformation, this question of the Lord's Supper is is the issue on which the Lutherans and the Reformed remained divided, sadly, so that there wasn't a united Protestant church. And when you don't understand all this, you can be tempted to say, well, it just doesn't matter. Whatever we understand about it, the Lord's Supper still blesses us. And that's very true. But it actually does matter, not only for the sake of the unity of the church, but also because when we have a proper understanding of what's going on in the Lord's Supper, then when we participate it with when we participate in it with understanding, our sense of God's grace is magnified and our worship can be more authentic and true, and we're better equipped for God's mission in the world. I really believe that. There's a tight connection between understanding what's happening in our worship and the confidence in which we go out into the world for mission. So I'm not saying that you have to have a perfect understanding of the Lord's Supper for the Lord's Supper to bless you, but I do think a proper understanding of what's going on magnifies the blessing and equips us for mission. So here's how I'm gonna proceed with this talk. If you're keeping an outline in your head, uh, this is how this talk is gonna go. First, I'm going to situate our understanding of the Lord's Supper within a larger theology of sacraments understood in the context of new creation. So to really understand the Lord's Supper, we have to understand sacraments and the relationship to God's new creation project. Second, I'm gonna review the CSI liturgy for Holy Communion to show you our view of the Lord's Supper And third, I'm gonna defend that view from the Bible and specifically from uh, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. And Paul highlights seven things that happens in the Lord's Supper. And we're gonna talk about those seven things for the bulk of our time together. Uh, God's presence, our union with Christ, our unity with one another, thanksgiving, remembrance or memorial, uh, proclamation of the Lord's death and self-examination. Those are the seven things uh, that happen in the Lord's Supper. And the fruit of those seven things is our equipping for mission. And finally, I'm going to end by telling you why it matters that the CSI view is, in my opinion, true. And there are actually three strong pastoral benefits of our view. The first benefit is it strongly assures us of God's grace, and it is entirely focused on God's grace. The second benefit is that it helps us helps us commit ourselves as living sacrifices for God's glory. And the third benefit is that it it forms a basis for the reunion of the churches, which is a special prayer and hope of our tradition, of the CSI tradition and the CSI community. Okay, so let's start off by talking about sacramental theology in the new creation. Basically, because our understanding of the sacraments is indebted to Protestant reformers like Luther and Calvin and later Protestant thinkers like John and Charles Wesley and Richard Hooker, when we talk about the sacraments, we are talking about visible signs that convey or symbolize an inward reality. That's the Reformation tradition. Sacraments are signs of grace or symbols of grace. But that word symbol can easily be misunderstood in our day. To understand sacramental symbolism, we have to understand the way God relates to the world. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is tripersonal and transcendent. He exists outside of space, time, and matter. He exists above space, time, and matter. So he breaks all of our categories, which necessarily depend on space, time, and matter. And yet, because God is love, he commits himself to the world that he has created. He commits himself to space, time, and matter. So Romans chapter 1 talks about how creation itself is a testimony to the world about who God is. Paul in Romans 1 is talking about how God's invisible qualities have been made known by the visible creation. Creation is a symbol that communicates to the world who God is. See, symbols are about communication. They are a means by which we convey ourselves to one another. They are a means by which we ultimately share ourselves with one another. So for example, language is a symbol, right? Right now I am uttering certain sounds and grunts. And hopefully you're able to interpret those sounds and grunts as concepts and ideas so that you and I are able to relate to one another. Even sign language, for example, is symbolism. I make gestures with my hands and if you know the secret of decoding those gestures, if you know the secret of interpretation, you can decipher what I am communicating. It's only through this communication that I can really share myself, that I can share my life, I can share my story with you. Symbolism, therefore, is at the heart of human existence. I can't even think without symbols, right? When you think in your mind, you're thinking in a language, English for most of us, right? You, you don't have the capacity to be human without the symbols of language. So for deaf people, they sign in their heads. It's pretty fascinating. There have been studies on this. That's how they think. They think through signing. Symbolism structures your entire reality, And God, who is outside of space, time, and matter, communicates himself to his creation through symbolism in space, time, and matter. He binds himself to creation in space, time, and matter. God, who is outside history, acts in history. He calls Abraham and he forms Abraham into this desert nation called Israel. But his supreme act of self-communication is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, a Jewish man who lived in a certain time, in a certain place, who we nonetheless confess is God, the Son of God, the God-man in flesh. That's the mystery of the incarnation. This transcendent God, who is outside space, time, and matter, chose, in a real sense, to imprison himself in creation, in Jesus. Jesus is the supreme revelation of who God is. That's in Hebrews chapter 1. He is the ultimate symbol, the ultimate revelation, the ultimate communication of who God is. And the amazing thing that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8 is that because Jesus is revealed, we now can know God's intention towards creation. And his intention is not to destroy the world but to flood the world with his own presence, to fill creation up with himself, to sum up all of creation in his Messiah, Jesus. By receiving God's glory, creation is beautified, it's glorified. It's like how a beautiful chalice, when it's filled with the best wine, is beautified to its fullest extent. If you pour cheap wine into the beautiful chalice, you're actually degrading the chalice. But if you put the best wine in it, you are elevating and ennobling the chalice. God's intention from before the foundation of the world is to share his glory with creation. He's filling the beautiful goblet of the cosmos with the wine of his own glory. But in the Bible, we see some tensions about god's relationship to his creation romans 1 talks about how creation is a symbol of god to the world and yet romans 8 says creation is groaning for the sons of god to be revealed so that it can be set free from bondage this tension is apparent in the old testament too in the prophets For example, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the seraphim surrounding the throne of God say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. But Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 14 fills that out by saying, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So which is it? Is the the world full of God's glory already? Or will the world be full of God's glory in the future? The tension behind that question is what drives the entire narrative of the Bible forward. With Genesis chapter 1, God launches a great creation project where he creates the world to be a theater for his love and glory. And he creates human beings, male and female, to be his images, his royal priests in creation who move creation toward some end goal. And what is that end goal? The end goal has always been from the moment of creation, what we see in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, the union of heaven and earth, God's domain and man's domain becoming one in a marriage ceremony. What begins as a garden becomes the garden city of the new Jerusalem with the river flowing out to the world and trees planted by the river and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and the kings of the nations stream into the new city, the new Jerusalem with gifts from all over the world to pay homage and honor to the lamb. And sin enters this picture. Sin disrupts God's original intention. God's intention was always to move from the garden in Genesis 2 to the garden city in Revelation 21 and 22. But sin enters in Genesis chapter 3 and disrupts this natural progress and trajectory. Sin is why human beings and creation as a whole are now corrupted and in slavery to death and destruction. Uh, But the amazing thing that causes Paul to write these great hymns of praise in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 and Romans chapter 8 is that God never wavered from his original intention to flood the world with his glory. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God brings the new creation project back on track. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrected Jesus will reign as Lord, until every enemy is placed under his feet. And then God will be all in all. God will be all in all. The world will be filled with the glory of God. That was his sovereign plan all along. And now because of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, we can know that that plan will be accomplished. It will be completed. The early church, when it first began announcing this gospel to the world, had to confront two errors, two wrong ways that people at that time were thinking about how God relates to creation. One error, one wrong way about how to think about how God relates to the world is that creation is God. God is creation. That's, that's a wrong way of thinking. There's no separation between the creator and the creation. This was prevalent in some Greek philosophical thought And it's also the way many Hindus today think about the world. Everything is divine. Everything is God. Against that, the church taught that there is a distinction between the creator and creation. The creator is holy. And and that word holy means set apart, unique. He's infinite and glorious. He's something distinct from creation. And creation is the work of the creator. It, It reveals the character of the creator, but it's not the creator himself. The other second error is to think that the creator is good, but creation is bad. This is something known as the Gnostic heresy. Basically, it's the idea that God is spiritual and everything that is spiritual, the more spiritual something is, the better it is. The more material or fleshly it is, the worse it is. And since creation, as we know it, as human beings know it, is made up of physical things, bodies and matter, those things must be bad. Those things are filthy. And so the second error was to think that because physical creation is bad, it's evil. That means that our salvation is just salvation of our souls and the physical things will burn away. They won't they won't remain. What will remain is just our souls taken away to heaven when we die. And against that. The Christian church always taught that the final act in the story of scripture is the reunion of heaven and earth in the new creation. Creation is good, but it's poisoned by sin. And so God sends Jesus to purify creation. And we, the church, witness to the world that this world is not going to be burned away, but it's going to be purified. And one day this physical world will be flooded with the full glorious presence of God. So what does this have to do with sacraments? The sacraments are when by God's grace, God allows us to experience a foretaste of that future reunion of heaven and earth when everything will be charged with the glory of God through our union with Jesus Christ. And he does so in the ways Jesus taught us in the waters of baptism and in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. So if we don't put sacraments in this greater new creation context, then when we say the sacraments are a symbol, we're going to think that sacraments are just something that make us think about our salvation. It's only intellectual. Uh, So when we say sacraments are a symbol, we, we think about seeing a symbol of like a college, right? So when I see a University of Texas longhorn symbol on a shirt, I think about UT. When I see a baptism, when I eat the Lord's Supper, I think about my salvation. It's very intellectual and it's very individualistic, but that's not what we mean when we say sacraments are a symbol. They are a symbol in the way language is a symbol. They're a symbol in the way a kiss between a husband and a wife communicates something that can't be easily expressed in words. Uh, to try and talk about a kiss of love between two people who love each other uh, is To come to the borders of language itself. It communicates something that we can't easily express in words. And that's what's happening in the sacraments. In the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, God is communicating himself to us in ways that can't easily be put in words. That's why it's ultimately right to call sacraments a mystery. The original Greek word for sacrament in Greek, it's mysterion, mystery. We can't put the sacraments under our control, totally, even conceptually or intellectually. Because it's the infinite holy God we're talking about, we have to talk about these things with fear and trembling, knowing that our words are always going to be inadequate when describing the reality. In the sacraments, God is communicating his favor, his gifts of salvation, and a foretaste of new creation. And ultimately, God is offering himself to us in these sacraments. He's uniting himself with us through the symbols of water and bread and wine. And that's why we call the sacraments symbols of grace. In the Lord's Supper specifically, God is feeding us with himself. So it's not just intellectual, it goes to the core of reality. Uh, We don't just think about salvation, we experience renewed renewal in salvation. With eyes of faith, we see what God is really doing with the bread and wine, how he is blessing us and assuring us by giving us his presence. And the results of that, of receiving signs of the future new creation now in the present, is that we are transformed into a new creation and advanced people. In a sense, we are a people from the future New Jerusalem, sent back into the past to the present age of this world to testify to this world the coming full reality of the kingdom of God. So that's the overarching context of how to think about the Lord's Supper in the light of new creation. Now let's examine the CSI liturgy for Holy Communion. One thing has to be said before we get into this section. As we look at the liturgy, we're going to see that we have a very exalted high respect for the sacraments. But that is balanced out by a very exalted high respect for the word of god before we turn to the breaking of bread we have been praying psalms and god has spoken to us through the old testament and the new testament and the gospel passages and also through uchen in his sermon and so it's with that prior context of having been saturated in god's word that we are then ushered into god's table word and sacrament in our service belong together And our liturgy shows us seven things about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper unites us with one another. So unity with one another, number one. Number two, God's presence. Number three, thanksgiving and praise. Number four, remembrance of Jesus's death and resurrection. Number five, a proclamation of Jesus's death until he comes again. Number six, union with Jesus Christ. And number seven, self examination. And the result of the Lord's Supper is that we become a people united to Jesus who are formed and shaped for mission to the world for God's glory. So let's turn to the liturgy now. Uh, we start with everyone standing, and then the Utchin says, Behold how good and joyful a thing it is, brethren, to dwell together in unity. We who are many are one bread, one body. For we all partake of the one bread, and the people respond, "I will offer in His dwelling an oblation with great gladness. I will sing and speak praises unto the Lord." And then we exchange the kiss of peace. So let's pause here. We start here with a focus on the unity that we are already experiencing, that has already been created by hearing God's word together. But also notice the quotation of First Corinthians ten verse seventeen here. We who are many partake, we who are many are one bread, one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Notice the order there. It is because we partake of the one bread that we are one body. You could imagine it being the reverse. You can imagine it being that because we are one body, we will all eat this one bread. But that's not what it says. Eating the one bread is what makes us one body. The meal itself gives us a further unity to that which has already been created by hearing god's word together so this unity is something we anticipate by sharing the kiss of peace with one another so the liturgy is teaching us that one aspect of the lord's supper is that it unites us together as brothers and sisters in the same way that there is one loaf of bread so let's continue on with the liturgy Uh, a hymn is sung offertory is taken up The elements of bread and wine are taken up. And then uh, Achan says a prayer over the offering. Holy Father, who through the blood of thy dear Son has consecrated for us a new and living way to thy throne of grace. We come to thee through him, unworthy as we are, and we humbly beseech thee to accept and use us, and these are gifts for thy glory. All that is in heaven and earth is thine, and of thine own do we give to thee. Amen. And the people pray, Be present, be present, O Jesus, thou good high priest, as thou wast in the midst of thy, disi- of thy disciples, and make thyself known to us in the breaking of the bread, who lifts and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Then the adjunct says, and the people respond, The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord. So this preceding section shows us something else that happens in the lord's supper and that is that we come into the presence of god we come into the throne room of god we're praying be present be present but we come to present ourselves in god's throne room through the good high priest jesus christ and we don't mean that just metaphorically we mean that truly literally heaven we are confessing that heaven is breaking out in our worship service. There is a foretaste of that ultimate reunion of heaven and earth that is happening here. There's a foretaste of new creation uh, that we talked about before. And so we really believe that God's presence is coming down in a new and unique way. But that leads to this question, how can this be possible? The Old Testament covenant shows that in order to enter into God's presence, whether at the tabernacle or at the temple later on, Israelite people had to follow a system of sacrifices. The sin offering to purify from sin, the ascension offering to enter into God's presence, the grain offering as tribute to God, the atonement offering for peace with God. And there was a specific order and a specific way in which all this had to happen. And it was presided over. When you look at Leviticus chapter 9, it gives us an example of how this liturgical order happens. It's presided over by the high priest. So in Leviticus 9, that's Aaron, the high priest. But the book of Hebrews in the New Testament shows us that this old covenant system of sacrifices was just a shadowy foretelling of the true new covenant worship that occurs with Jesus Christ. Because now Jesus Christ is our high priest. He makes purification for our sins with his own blood. He is the sin offering. He's ascended into God's presence after the resurrection and is interceding for us before the throne of God. He's the ascension offering. His accomplished work on the cross is the true tribute offering, bringing honor to God. And he is in himself, in his own person, the reconciliation between God and man. He is the atonement offering. He brings us peace with God. And the climax of the Old Testament worship is uh, the, the worshipers send off the ascension offering, which is the smoke of a burnt offering that rises up into the Shekinah glory cloud that hovers over the tabernacle. And that represents the people rising up to be in the presence of God. And then the high priest takes the peace offering, which is a ram and an ox on the altar. He he places it on the altar and he divides that into portions. One portion for the priest to eat, one portion to be consumed by the fire and ascend into the glory cloud, and one portion for the worshipers to eat. And this meal that is shared between the people, the priests, and God represents the peace enjoyed by the people now that they have atoned for their sins and drawn near to his presence. And in our liturgy, we are saying that all of that, which happened in the Old Testament worship, is now happening to us, but in a completed and fulfilled way, and in a way that totally centers on the work and person of Jesus Christ. So secondly, uh, first, the liturgy taught us that we experience unity with one another. But secondly, the liturgy is now teaching us that the Holy Spirit is bringing us into God's presence, not by our own merits, but by the merits of Jesus Christ, the good high priest, so that now we can be in the presence of God and enjoy his peace and eat a meal with him. So let's continue on. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do. It is verily meet, right, in our bounden duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto Thee, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Everlasting God, through Jesus Christ Thy Son, our Lord, through whom Thou didst create the create the heavens and the earth and all that in them is, and didst make man in Thine own image, and when he had fallen into sin, didst redeem him to be the firstfruits of a new creation. Therefore, with angels and archangels. And with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to thee, O Lord most high. Blessed be he that hath come and is to come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. At this point in the service, we see very clearly the element of thanksgiving. Eucharisteo in the Greek, which is where we get our English word Eucharist. Thanksgiving is honestly suffused throughout the entire service. And a lot of these elements are not just in one section. uh, They're in multiple sections of the liturgy. But what's highlighted here is especially this uh, theme of Thanksgiving. And there are three things in particular that the liturgy says we should be thankful for here. That the liturgy actually says we should be thankful for in all times and in all places, not just in the worship service. So first, we are told we should be thankful for Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom the world is both created, in whom man is made in God's image, and through whom the world is redeemed. Second, we should be thankful for God for creating the heavens and earth as a theater for God's glory, and third, we should be thankful that God has redeemed man from sin specifically to be the first fruits of the new creation by resurrecting Jesus Christ. So from sin to new creation, there's a, there's a juxtaposition being presented to us. Our original condition, the depths of sin that we were in originally, and the heights to which God is raising us in Jesus Christ as the new creation in advance, people. And so when we see that juxtaposition, the natural result, it should be an overflow of thanksgiving and praise from our hearts. And by connecting this feeling of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord's Supper meal, the liturgy is teaching us that this thanksgiving and praise will be as natural to us as the delight and praise we feel when we taste good bread and when we drink good wine. Uh, And there's an allusion, I think, here to Psalm 103, talking about bread sustaining our hearts and wine gladdening our hearts. The Spirit is using the gifts of bread and wine, specifically those elements. They matter because they are used to communicate to us as we eat them in ways that surpass words, the joy and thanksgiving we feel as we eat a meal together in the presence of God and give him praise and thanksgiving. So let's continue on. So that was Thanksgiving. Let's move on to the rest of the lit- liturgy. Truly holy, truly blessed art thou, O heavenly Father, who of thy tender love towards mankind didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to take our nature upon him and to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction, and satisfaction, for the sins of the whole world, and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue perpetual memory of that his precious death until his coming again, who in the same night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he break it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of this, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as oft as ye shall drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Thy death, O Lord, we commemorate, thy resurrection we confess, and thy second coming we await. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Wherefore, wherefore, O Father, having in remembrance the precious death and passion and glorious resurrection and ascension of thy Son, our Lord. We thy servants do this in remembrance of him as he hath commanded until his coming again, giving thanks to thee for the perfect redemption which thou hast wrought for us in him. We give thanks to thee, we praise thee, we glorify thee. In this section, we still see the themes of presence. Uh, This is my body, for example. And thanksgiving and even unity but the dominant theme here is remembrance so in addition to being a thanksgiving meal and a fellowship meal and a meal that communicates god's presence this is a memorial meal this is a perpetual memory in the words of the liturgy and here there is a cognitive intellectual element to the lord's supper absolutely zwingli and the memorialists are not wrong to talk about remembering christ in the supper we are supposed to remember we are supposed to hold the salvation that has been won for us in our minds Uh, and a good point of comparison is uh, the way the jewish people conducted their memorial meal which is the passover meal because we have to remember that the lord that the lord jesus christ instituted this supper during a Passover meal. And in so doing, he was building on the prior framework and the prior ideas that came from the Passover meal. The Passover was this opportunity for the Jews to remember who they really are. And there were two aspects to that, uh, two aspects to remembering their true identity as the people who were slaves in Egypt, but who were delivered out of bondage because of the love of mighty God. And, and those two aspects uh, you can see, actually, if, you're, if you've ever participated in a Jewish cedar today uh, celebrating the Passover, you'll see there are two main elements that highlight, uh, that give shape to the memorial. And the first element is the recital of what happened in the past. So the way the Passover cedar begins is you, typically the youngest child will ask this question uh, to the table why is this night different from all, from all other nights? And the people reply, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and God brought us out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And if God had not brought our ancestors out of Egypt, we and our children and our children's children would still be subjugated to Pharaoh in Egypt. So that's the first element, reciting what happened in the past, the salvation that was won. And the second element is the future of hope. So how does the Jewish cedar end? It ends with the people crying out together, next year in Jer- Jerusalem, next year, may we all dwell in peace. There's this um, anticipation of Jerusalem, the city of God, the new creation hope, it's, it's still there. Uh, and I'm not saying that Jesus presided over a Jewish cedar in the same way that 21st century Jews do at the Last Supper. We can't really know that, but the way 21st century Jews still practice the Passover today with an emphasis on remembering who we are and remembering our future hope should inform the way that we Christians view the Lord's Supper as a memorial meal. Because both aspects are there for us as well. As we eat the Lord's Supper, The liturgy reminds us that we were slaves to sin who needed an oblation. We needed a sacrifice to blot our sins out. We needed a liberator to deliver us from bondage to death, sin, and the devil. And God provided the sacrifice. God provided the liberator in Jesus Christ. And the liturgy also reminds us that our future hope is the new Jerusalem, the new creation that comes when Jesus Christ comes again. So in these two aspects, we celebrate a perpetual memory of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the liturgy here. And we most humbly beseech thee, O merciful Father, to to sanctify with thy Holy Spirit us and these thine own gifts of bread and wine, that the bread which we break may be the communion of the body of Christ and the cup which we bless the communion of the blood of Christ. Grant that, being joined together in him, we may all attain to the unity of the faith and may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, even Christ our Lord, by whom and with whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be unto thee, O Father Almighty, world with Here the liturgy teaches us what to our tradition is a precious central meaning of the Lord's Supper. Around which all the other elements and meanings orbit. And that is the confidence that the people of God by faith are united to Christ. Now, with the Reformers, we believe that our faith is what unites us to Christ. Our union with Jesus is sealed with our baptism. We talked about that in the baptism podcast. So, Someone could say, if, if faith is what communicates our union with Christ and if baptism is the sign and seal of that, then what more can the Lord's Supper give you? Um, and I can only explain the importance of the Lord's Supper here by means of an analogy. A daughter walking outside with her father is always her father's daughter. But there is a moment when the father looks at the child and is reminded of his love for her and he sweeps her up into his arms, and he plants kisses all over her face. And in that moment, the little daughter experiences the love of the father, and it confirms to her that, yes, she is her father's daughter. Now, of course, we all know it was always true. The daughter was always the father's daughter. And yet, there is an experience that renews and strengthens The little girl's confidence and love and trust in her father when he sweeps her up to his chest, hugs her, and kisses her. And in the same way, in the Lord's Supper, we experience our union with Christ in a unique way. It's a union that persists at all times and in all places outside the worship service. But we are like that young daughter. We need to be renewed and strengthened in our confidence that we really are united to Jesus and that therefore we are truly delightful to God the Father and that we have the Holy Spirit in a way leading us in a way that the devil can never shake us from our faith. And these words that we say in this part of our liturgy are almost a direct quotation from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the word we say communion, uh, sometimes translated participation, is the Greek word koinonia. And it's not participation in the sense of getting a participation trophy in America. It's participation in the sense of a common inheritance. So if you think of some of our dads who might have inherited land in India, they often inherit that land in common with their brothers, right? So... Three brothers have a common inheritance in their father's house. They share koinonia. They share ownership. They share inheritance. And that's the glory of what we experience in the Lord's Supper. It's not something new that is given to us. It's something that belongs to us by faith. By faith in Christ, we are heirs to everything Christ is heir to. We reign in the new creation with Christ. When God the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son. Everything that is Jesus is ours. This is all an amazing inheritance that we share with Jesus by faith. And yet, because we are weak human beings, we need to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus to renew our faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to experience this union. It can't just be an idea we hold in our heads and we remind ourselves of every once in a while. We need to experience that God longs for us and longs to be with us and that he is giving himself to us mysteriously in this bread and wine. And that's the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying, I think, in John chapter 6, verses 53 to 58. Jesus said to them, so I'm going to read from John chapter 6 now, starting with verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We'll say more about this later on. But all of the reformers... Luther, Calvin, Butzer, Bullinger, Thomas Cranmer, all of the reformers except Huldrych Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, were confident that we experience abiding union with Christ, that we are assured that we remain in him by really and truly feeding on his body and drinking his blood in the Lord's Supper. The main point of difference they had with the Catholics and even with one another was on how that happened how it is that we are really and truly feeding on the body and the blood what the relationship of the body and the blood to the bread and wine exactly was that's what they all disagreed about but they were confident that however it happens it is happening and in our church the liturgy teaches us to lead, teaches us to leave that question about how it happens open the main thing we confess is that whatever is happening that allows us to feed on Christ? It is by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that sanctifies the bread and wine, and it is the Spirit that sanctifies and sets us apart also. And here I think we are influenced by the story in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35 that teaches us about how Jesus can be simultaneously present and absent. So, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35 uh, is the story you might know of it of Jesus meeting the disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, the seven mile road to Emmaus. So, two disciples are walking back from Jerusalem after Jesus has been killed. And they're very sad because they were hoping Jesus would be the Messiah. And then Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize him. So, they engage in conversation. And Jesus ends up explaining to them through this seven mile trek to Emmaus, he ends up explaining to them from all of the scriptures, starting with Moses and the prophets, how everything was pointing to his story that he needed to die as the Messiah. So he's showing how all of scripture points to himself. And then the two disciples get to the village of Emmaus and Jesus acts like he's going to keep going on, but the two disciples beg him to stay with them a little longer and to eat with them. And then at the table, Jesus takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it to them. And at that moment, the eyes of the disciples are opened and they recognize Jesus and he disappears from his sight. And then they say to each other, astonished, of course it was him. Weren't our hearts within us burning as he opened the scriptures to us? And what's so fascinating about that story is, in a way, that's exactly what happens to us in our Sunday worship. We're the disciples on the road who Jesus meets with as we are pilgrims walking through life. Um, And Jesus comes to us and he reveals himself to us through the Old Testament, the the Psalms, the New Testament, the Gospel reading, Uchen's sermon, and as we progress in the service, singing songs, praying psalms, our hearts begin to burn within us as we lift them up to the Lord. And then Uchin takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it to us. And just like those disciples, <clears throat> we recognize that Jesus is present and we are truly united with him. But it's a presence that is simultaneously marked by his absence, as it must be in this age before the end of all things, because he is not here. He is here, in the bread and wine, and yet he is not here in the fullness of his body as he will be at the new creation. And so in the New Testament, we we read on in Acts and in the epistles that whenever Jesus is making his real presence known, despite his continued absence, the only way that can happen is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why it's right to say with John Calvin, that we really do eat Jesus's body and we really do drink his blood, but it's by the power of the spirit when we eat the bread and wine. So let's continue on with the Lord's, uh, the liturgy for the table here. Um, As our Savior Christ hath commanded and taught us, we are bold to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Then there's silence for a little bit. And then we continue to pray the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord, whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy, dear, of thy dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies and souls may be made clean by his most precious body and blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. Then the utchin rises and says, The bread which we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? Which is a quotation from First Corinthians chapter 10 again. Or, he says, the things of God for the people of God. And then the people say or sing together, O Lamb of God that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. So three things have happened in this portion of the liturgy. Uh, And it's all connected to the theme of self-examination. So first, confident that we are about to receive the body and blood of our Lord, we have prayed the Lord's prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us. Second, we have prayed the prayer of humble access, which is a prayer that echoes the story of the centurion who asks Jesus to heal his servant in Matthew chapter eight. And he said to Jesus, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, But just say the word and my servant will be healed. It's also a prayer that echoes the story of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, who begs Jesus to drive a demon out of her daughter and who tells Jesus even the dogs under the table are able to eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus rewards her for a great act of faith. And so it's in the same faithful but penitential spirit, aware that nothing we have done can earn this gift of union with christ that we come to the lord's table to sup with jesus to dine with jesus to feast on jesus and it is with this time of self-examination where we are made even more aware of our unworthiness of the graciousness of god to bring us into his table despite our idolatry and we cry out to god to continue to have mercy Uh, Lord, have mercy on us. This penance, this self-examination is not done to earn God's favor. And sometimes in our community, self-examination and even guilt can be the dominant emotion we feel as we come to the table. But remember that this self-examination is just one theme of seven that is happening throughout the Lord's Supper service. Uh, It's just one part It's one aspect of the Lord's Supper, and it's done in a broader context of celebration and freedom and joy and thanksgiving. So there is a penitential aspect to the Lord's Supper as we recognize and wrestle with our unworthiness and failure, but the dominant emotion as we come to the table should be wonder and joy, that despite our failure and our inadequacy, God, because he is loving, has made a way for him to be with us through his son. This is a God who is powerful and just, but he is also a God who is good and can be trusted to love us always. And that's the dominant feeling that should come through even as we're examining ourselves. So then the people uh, receive the bread and wine and a hymn is sung and the following words of administration are used by the Uchen, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ the true vine. And the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that as we are eating and drinking this meal we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. But in what sense is this true? How are we preaching the gospel in this ritual? where we come up row by row to the table, kneel together, an upachid to next to a 12-year-old boy, hands outstretched, waiting for the bread, then taking the wine and drinking it. How, are, how is that proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again? And I don't want to take too much time on this point because I think it's something that, w- that will reward you if you ponder on that question. How is that proclaiming the Lord's death? But I do want to suggest one thing our Western Enlightenment-derived theory of knowledge is primarily cognitive and intellectual. And that mars our understanding of what it means to know something, and it also mars our understanding of what it means to proclaim something to someone else or to teach someone something else. To know in our society, we want to categorize information and break it down um, and... Put it together in different orders in our minds. And there's a lot to be gained from that model of knowing. But in the Hebrew Bible, knowing is not, it's funny to say this, but knowing is not primarily intellectual, it's bodily and experiential. We are to taste and see that the Lord is good. Above all, knowing is relational, it is about the knowledge passed between two people. So how does Eve conceive her children from Adam? In the Hebrew, it says Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth. The Hebrew word there is yada, know. Adam yada, his wife. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth. There was a knowledge that passed between Adam and Eve. When God knows someone, or for example, chooses Abraham, the word used again is knowledge, yada. His knowledge is his choosing. His knowledge of a person is his choosing of the person. Knowledge and action are tightly connected in the Hebrew Bible, and they're very relationally connected. There's something in the ritual of coming together as a people, taking the bread, taking the wine, eating and drinking it, that allows us to know and proclaim God and his gospel to each other and to the world in a way that surpasses language. It's knowing in that Adam and Eve sense, in that God and Abraham sense. We know in our bodies, we know by means of the covenant knowledge of Yahweh, that we belong to God and his Christ by the power of the Spirit in the Lord's Supper. And so that is how we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So then after everyone has eaten, uh, the presbyter says, or the etching says, having now by faith received the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, let us give thanks. And then the people pray one of two prayers. So I'll, I'll read the first prayer first. O oh, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has accepted us as thy children in thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and has fed us with the spiritual food of his most precious body and blood. Giving us the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of everlasting life. Pause there. I just want to re-emphasize here that line, the spiritual food of his most precious body and blood. That's really in a nutshell our teaching on the Lord's Supper. It's by the Spirit that we feed on Christ's body and blood when we eat the gifts of bread and wine. So anyway, continuing on, we thank and praise thee for these inestimable benefits, and we offer and present unto thee ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a holy and living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. Side note, that's a quotation from Romans chapter 12, I believe. Grant us grace not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may learn what is thy good and perfect will, and so obey thee here on earth, that we may at the last rejoice with all thy saints in the heavenly kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Or, so that's one prayer that could be prayed. Or, the second option is this. Almighty and everlasting God, we most heartily thank thee for that that thou dost vouchsafe to feed us, who have duly received these holy mysteries with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ and dost assure us thereby of thy favor and goodness towards us, and that we are very members, incorporate, in the mystical body of thy Son, which is the blessed company of all faithful people, and are also heirs through hope of thine everlasting kingdom, by the merits of the most precious death and passion of thy dear Son. And we most humbly beseech thee, O Heavenly Father, so to assist us with thy grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in. And here we offer and present unto thee ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And so this shows us the result of the Lord's Supper on us, the people. And the result of the Supper is a renewal of the people of God, confirmation that we are God's children, confirmation that we are God's people, and our transformation into living sacrifices sent out into the world in mission for God's glory, to do the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. That's a quotation from Ephesians. And this is an extremely key point. We are empowered to spend ourselves out as living sacrifices only because we are so confident that we are united with Christ. And I I just want to reemphasize this because I said this before but I'll say it again. Our faith is so shaky. We are so weak that we need to continually remind ourselves of who we are in Jesus Christ. And that's not just through the preaching of the word, it's also through the tasting of the word. Through tasting the bread and the wine, we feed spiritually on Jesus Christ. And so we become confident in our identity. We can only sacrifice for God's mission if we are utterly confident that we are at peace with God. And if we experience that peace and love over and over again. And that's why we always have to come back to the table, because in the table, we have this precious, beautiful, renewing experience of God's love and peace that empowers us to go out into the world as witnesses to God's love and mercy. And so I know we spent quite some time on this, but I hope you see how our liturgy gives us this dense, beautiful, comprehensive teaching on what we are doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We experience unity with one another. We experience the presence of God. We give thanks for God's many gifts, especially the gift of our salvation. We remember the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ for our deliverance from sin. We examine our own hearts and idolatry in light of his great love and self offering to us. We're united to Christ as we feed. Feast on his flesh and blood by the Spirit, and we proclaim the Lord's death to ourselves and to the world until His coming again. And so now I'm going to move to the next section of the talk and I'm not going to take as much time as I have on the liturgy because I think when I went over the liturgy, um, I showed how much it is echoing or paraphrasing or straight up quoting the Bible, but let's turn briefly to look at Paul's teaching on what the Lord's Supper means in First Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. And what we see are those exact same seven elements we saw in our service. The unity of brothers and sisters, the presence of God, thanksgiving to God, union with Jesus Christ, the remembering Jesus's death, proclaiming Jesus's death until he comes again, and self-examination. All seven elements are in those passages in First Corinthians 10 and 11. So, Let's start actually in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where Luke says the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the fellowship, and the breaking of the bread. And the breaking of the bread is, I think, clearly a reference to the Lord's Supper. Um, So the early church testifies that it is centered around these four things, including celebration of the Lord's Supper. But it doesn't really tell us what the Lord's Supper is, that instruction, the most explicit instruction on what the Lord's Supper is, comes from Paul in First Corinthians, where he's correcting abuses of the Lord's Supper. And this is what he writes in First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 15 to 17, and then First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 30. So I'll read it all together. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation koinonia in the body of Christ because there is one loaf we who are many are one body for we all share the one loaf in the following directives I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good in the first place I hear that when you come together as a church there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you are coming together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves." That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So what's going on in this passage? Basically, Paul is reprimanding the Corinthian church for abusing the Lord's Supper, this is not supposed to be a private supper like any normal, ordinary meal, but the Corinthians are treating it that way when they gather. And that's why Paul says in verse verses 20 to 21 of chapter 11, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You're doing your own private supper and trying to show each other how blessed some of you are in comparison to other people. And the result of that is some of you are remaining hungry, which means you haven't they haven't been able to eat or drink anything while others of you are eating everything and drinking everything so much that you get drunk at what is supposed to be a worship meeting. And we know from the context that in Roman society at this time, which would be true of a city like Corinth, there would be a great separation between the poor and the rich, so that usually poor and rich would not eat together. And what was likely happening Was that the rich were coming in bringing their own bread and wine for themselves and their wealthy friends but they were not sharing it with the poor so that the poor believers were not sharing in the lord's supper and this lack of unity among the brothers and sisters in christ is scandalous to paul because he knows that this is not just an issue of satisfying hunger with bread and wine This is about sharing in Christ's body and blood. It's about remembering his passion on the cross and proclaiming his death until he comes again. And if we eat and drink unworthily, verse 30 shows us that people have become sick and even died. So this is something that has to be done with the utmost reverence and has to be preceded with self-examination. And I just want to show you, have great confidence in our order of worship, because all of the elements talk, Paul talks about here are elements that we emphasize in our worship. So unity, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. We, co- we quote that line directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in our liturgy. Presence. The holiness of God is what is afflicting people when they eat and drink unworthily. Just like we have so many examples in the Old Testament of those who handled the Ark of the Covenant or the tabernacle in an unworthy manner and therefore died. Because we are in God's presence, we truly are in God's presence. There is great joy, but there's also danger here. Thanksgiving and memorial. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 25. Again, lines that we recite in our liturgy. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So there's thanksgiving here. It's called the cup of thanksgiving that we bless. Um, so moving on to union, First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 says, Is not the bread which we break a participation, a koinonia in the body of Christ, a common inheritance, a union. Is not the cup we bless a koinonia in the blood of Christ. We really are by faith uniting with jesus's body and uniting with his blood and fellowshipping with him in that way we're experiencing union with jesus proclamation paul says in first corinthians chapter 11 verse 26 for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes again we've already spoken about this a bit but i want to quote the presbyterian pastor and theologian peter lightheart who has written on how the Lord's Supper proclaims the death of Jesus some more. Because I think it's, it's actually a very beautiful passage he's written, and it, it gives us a lot of uh, things to reflect on, on how we are proclaiming the Lord's death. So this is Lightheart writing. It is the communal meal as a whole, the fact that we eat together, and the way we do it, that proclaims the Lord's death. In fact, I believe there are good reasons for thinking that this is the case. It is particularly noteworthy that the eating and drinking is what proclaims the Lord's death in verse 26. Not the fraction, the the breaking of the bread, or the pouring of wine, or the words of institution, but the common meal, the meal itself. How does the eating and drinking proclaim the Lord's death? We get a clue from Paul's striking charge in chapter 11, verse 20, that when the Corinthians come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Their meal is not the supper because there are factions within the church and because each is acting selfishly. The difference between the Lord's Supper and the corrupted meal of the Corinthians does not have to do with differences in ritual actions, the elements used, or the words spoken. The difference between eating the Lord's Supper and corrupting it lies in the way people behave toward one another, both at the meal itself and in daily life. It is not going too far to suggest that for Paul, the Corinthian meals, since they are not the Lord's Supper, do not proclaim the Lord's death. Whatever words are said and whatever actions are performed, the Corinthians did not truly show forth the death of Christ in their communal meals. The Lord's death is proclaimed only when the supper is celebrated rightly, that is, when the participants are living in unity and peace and when each is treating others as better than himself. So let's move on to uh, self-examination that's seen in verses 27 to 29. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So the examination of our hearts is not just this intellectual exercise where we identify what our idols are or what our sin patterns are. We also have to discern the body of Christ in what we're eating and drinking. And that means putting christ above the idols we have to root the idols out with the gospel we have to live in line with the gospels the the corinthians are invited to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the wine and if they do so they would recognize that the way they are treating their poor brothers and sisters in the church is unacceptable right because if you are trained to discern the body of christ in the lord's supper meal then it will be easier for you to discern the image of Christ in your poor brothers and sisters in the church, no matter how much they are annoying you or upsetting you. And if we fail to do this as a church, instead of receiving grace and assurance, we will receive judgment. So to resummarize the biblical teaching on the Lord's Supper, participation, I'm going to say it in a slightly different way, participation in god's self-gift his self-offering to us transforms us into gifts to the world that's the result of the supper right we become living sacrifices to god for the sake of mission to god's glory when we experience unity with one another the presence of god union with christ thanksgiving and praise Uh, remembrance of the Lord's passion, proclaiming his death and coming again. And when we examine ourselves in light of God's love, the result is our transformation. And so I'm going to quote Peter Lightheart here again. That God gives himself is not the speculation of theologians, but the heart of the gospel. Now let me read that again. That God gives himself is not the speculation of theologians, but the heart of the gospel. God gives himself. What God gives to us in the gospel is fellowship with him, communion with him, eternal life with him. In the most famous verse in the new Testament, Jesus says that the father loved the world and gave his only begotten son. John chapter three, verse 16. This gift from the father is also a self gift of the son who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Um, So, Jesus says, uh, Paul writes that he gave himself for me, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, and as a loving husband, Jesus gave himself for his bride, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 2 and 25. Not only the son, but the spirit as uh, the theologian Augustine recognized, is a gift from the Father and Son to us, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22, so that all who believe and are baptized receive the gift of the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, whether Jews or Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, verse 45. And when the Son and Spirit are given, the Father is given as well. Through the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit come to be with us. We are engrafted into them and they in us recognizing that sacraments are gifts get us past minimalist sacramental theology gifts are not mere signs they signify but they also confer when a lover gives his beloved a vase of flowers or a box of chocolates he's not merely giving plant life or fattening food nor is he merely signifying his love He is giving something of himself The gift is a sign of a self-gift, but not only a sign, uh, because the various gifts we give our beloved are also the means of our self-gift. If we gave nothing to our beloved, no words of love, no physical gifts, no help or encouragement, no gift of time, then we'd rightly be accused of being bad lovers. We can't say that we give ourselves when we give nothing else at all. We give ourselves, let us say, in, with, and under the gifts that we give. And so does God. In baptism, he gives himself to the baptized through the gift of baptism. In the Lord's Supper, he gives himself to us in the gifts of bread and wine. That's the biblical teaching on the Lord's Supper. It's a rite of God's self-gift, which transforms us into his gifts for the to the world for his glory. So why does this matter? Uh, And I'm going to be brief here because I know I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, First, confidence in God's grace. One reason that this matters is that this understanding of the Lord's Supper increases our sense, our delight, our joy in God's grace. You don't have to understand all this to benefit from the Lord's Supper. The Supper itself is Gives Jesus to you whether you understand what's happening or not but when you understand what is happening the benefits are magnified when you understand that you're being knit closer together in fellowship and that you are by faith and in the spirit communing with Jesus in the gifts of bread and wine and expressing thanksgiving and examining your heart and being brought into the throne room of the father. Uh, The love of God is so powerfully communicated to you that you just come out of the Lord's Supper with this tremendous assurance of God's grace, his power and favor, and this amazing trust in his goodness towards us. So that's one benefit of this view of the Lord's Supper. The second benefit is that it equips us for mission. N.T. Wright, uh, an Anglican bishop who has written about this a lot, um, says it this way, When we learn to discern Christ in the bread and wine, then we are trained and equipped to discern Christ in the faces of the poor, the sick, the prisoner, and the stranger in the world, as Jesus tells us to do in Matthew chapter 25. The Lord's Supper prepares us uh, for mission. It empowers us and equips us to do the mighty good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. And the third benefit of this view of the Lord's Supper is for the future reunion of the churches it's a sad irony that paul's rebuke of the church in corinth for their abuse of the lord's supper was not because they had the wrong theology of the lord's supper but because they had broken unity with their fellow christian brothers and sisters in the way that they were eating the meal for not eating and drinking properly with other christians in in the supper with love for them and yet This issue of the theology of the Lord's Supper has sadly broken fellowship, broken unity between Christians, Roman Catholics and Orthodox and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Puritans and Baptists and Pentecostals. In our own church, anyone who confesses the Nicene Creed and who has been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is welcome to the Lord's table with us, regardless of tradition or denominational background. But this is sadly not true of many churches, and we have to respect them for their reasoning, but we also have to engage them in debate and discussion. It may be that as we have these debates and discussions with other traditions, we will have to revise our language regarding the Lord's Supper, especially as we pursue unity with low church Protestants like Baptists who typically have a more Zwinglian, memorialist view of the communion. Of communion. And also with high church, Roman Catholics and Orthodox, who sometimes doubt that we believe in the real presence of Christ because we don't hold to physical transubstantiation. Instead, we we hold to spiritual by the power of the Holy Spirit. We feed on Christ's body and blood with the gifts of bread and wine. So they, they doubt that we believe in the real presence of Christ in the meal. And so we have to be open to revising our language. We have to be open to these theological discussions and developments as long as they can be defended on biblical grounds. And actually, when you get into the details of some of the ongoing discussions between Catholics and Orthodox and Anglicans and Reformed and Pentecostals, you you get excited because you see a new openness and new possibilities for for reunion being articulated as each tradition learns from the other traditions. Uh, And I think no one articulates that hope for future reunion on the basis on a common understanding of what's happening in the Lord's Supper better than the Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright. So I'd encourage y'all to read or listen to some of his lectures on the sacraments because they're posted online. But we should also offer our own position in humility as a way forward for all churches to come to a common understanding of the Lord's Supper. Because I truly believe our position is one that is in line with the testimony of all scripture. In the Lord's Supper, uh, just like the Bible teaches, we experience God's presence and self-gift. We truly feed on Christ's body and drink his blood as he taught us to do in John chapter six, but we do so by means of faith and the Holy Spirit, not by uh, the physical transformation of the bread and wine. And in so doing, we are united to Christ and to one another. We express our thanks to God. We examine ourselves. We remember the passion and resurrection of our Lord. And we proclaim his death until he comes again. And again, the result of experiencing God's self-gift, his feeding of us with himself, is that we are strengthened and renewed as living sacrifices for God's glory so that now we become his gift to the world, sent forth as witnesses of his transforming love and mercy to a world that desperately needs him. And that's why I think our teaching on the Lord's Supper